Let's go ahead and get into the word right now. It's been prayed over. I feel very saturated in that. You're going to be in 1 Samuel. We're going to be picking it up in the 27th chapter. And I'm going to be anchoring you in the book of Hebrews in the 6th chapter. So you'll have to hold your place. Hebrews just before the book of James. It can be a little tricky. Don't feel embarrassed to use your table of contents, your indexes, or just flipping them like a deck of cards. Just find your place. I'm directing your eyes in the book of Hebrews, sixth chapter at verse nine for application for today's study. And if I see notes being taken well and nobody falling asleep, you will get out earlier than last week. <laughs> it's funny, though. I go to the door to let as many of you out as fast as possible, and you just linger and soak up fellowship. You completely dismiss what I'm there for, to hold the door open for you. It's like, I'm like the Maytag repairman when I go over there. It's like nobody cares. You're just into fellowship. That's awesome. Here's where we're going to pick it up. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. I believe Paul does pen this, and though there are different perceptions on this, I always like to say he's qualified. He penned the majority of the New Testament. But nevertheless, what I say by this is this is profound really to anything that we are going through, and in particular what David himself has gone through. Note this, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. Verse 10, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown towards his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. The situations in our life that at times seem foreboding and unexpectedly unwelcomed are the reasons that we want to be anchored in the assurance of God's word that keeps us steadfast, no matter what. How many were here on Thursday? Okay, how many were not here on Thursday? Okay, now that's okay. That's, that doesn't, praise God you're here today, right? But the reason that I say that is, is simply that on Thursday, and please, if you would, those who have heard this, uh, just be indulgent. I'll, I'll get it more precise. But it does have to do with what we will see David doing and what you and I as well can do, but what God would say, stay anchored in my words so that you don't do what you ought not do when you're surprised and you feel as though you're coming undone. So on Thursday at about 4.10, the call came from the police department, in particular the chief of police, confirming that Karis was in an accident and not responding and 
encouraging me to come down. So you can understand the head spin. And those that were with me on Thursday and those that had a snippet of it on Friday, there's a reason for me replaying this record, okay? Or CD. There's a reason for me to replay it. So in all the things that the imagination can be in the grip of, which may be at that time not confidence in God, we can end up doing things that we simply are not in the right mind to make a decision over. So for me, it was moving out with quickness, not trying to cast alarm and for what I did not know. We can always look back and say, what we could have done, but the bottom line is, is that the revelation came to me. And so in moving towards that scene and keeping myself really governed and entrusting the Lord, the last word I heard was non-responsive. And you can understand what that can mean, right? So as I get there, the unfolding of, of that event as a crisis was before me. Please the Calor life flight crew, firemen, the whole gambit. It was like a block that was cordoned off. And I was given, in my opinion, special access. And I am saying that for reasons that also play into what we have to understand is what God can do in the time in which you are undone. And so the bottom line is, is that uh, Karis uh, ended up fainting and she was realizing that that was what was happening and moved over but blacked out before it could get parked. And so the rest is simply this. When I came upon the scene, that car was tilted at a 45 degree and pretty much buried in this ditch, cantered to her left, driver's side, and firemen were around it, some were in it. And, and it had the semblance of a metal sarcophagus with an earth mound around it. And the picture was fairly dramatic. And so moving in as the father, people giving way to me, and I wasn't exploiting it, I wasn't out of control, but there was the need to get into the predicament, to settle someone in that crisis. And I remembered thinking this, this is completely against protocol. When do they let a private citizen, even a family member, come into a scene that still has not been settled? So that's the first thing that I thought. How could this be? It's not like they couldn't have handled it nor her, but all of a sudden, I'm invited to come into this sarcophagus, this Honda Accord sarcophagus, to extract my daughter because they seemingly couldn't. And in this process, I'm realizing this is even bigger than me. What I did was simply say, this is what I can do. Karis, I'm going to pray now for you. Let's do that. And I remembered that in that, guys behind me, big gear on, there was just this silence in this place that I was in. <clears throat> but a response that was amazing. 
because the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guarded her heart, guarded my heart, and introduced the Lord into the crisis, the predicament, which allowed instruction to be given, a pronouncement of faith to be resonating in the ears. And so she was brought out by my hand and instructions, and now these big guys that are behind me and off to my side. And I say that because in such times in which the grip of fear may be upon you, we have to understand that there is a fearless God who is with us. And is it take flight or is it to reach up and grab a hold of his might? Some of us are in real time predicaments right now. That was mine. I don't know if you noticed, but she's here worshiping here today. But it's a little bit slower today. She, she's got some pains involved with that. In fact, this week actually had pains involved. We all ended up crunching our kneecaps, pulling our muscles. We just all ended up getting contorted and worked on. So even though this is an illustration that some heard, I want you to understand that in the context of this scripture and in chapter 27, we will go through the unexpected, but our expectation must be in the highest regard of what God says through this word concerning you, the things that accompany salvation, that we are confident of better things. We're confident of better things. What if the better thing was is that she was unresponsive because she passed on to the better thing? Where does that leave us? Where does it leave us? Leaves us absent of one we love. Leaves us seeking God for greater grace. But the bottom line is, is that this is the reality of the believer, that when there are times in which there is persecution, when there are times in which there are things that press us to the last ounce and measure of faith, is God who he says he is, and is he any less because of what it is we must endure? This is a confident message concerning you, and that is, of the better things concerning you. Yes, the better things. He's not unjust. He hasn't forgotten what he is, and he has not forgotten what you have done. This is not God. He sees the labor of your love that you've shown towards his name, your ministry to the saints, and still yet do what? Minister. We have that determination, as we also see in David's life, to minister, regardless of the misery. But there's always choices to make in how you minister beyond the misery. And this we see being written is that we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. Whose end? One that you love? Whose end? Your end? But regardless, God says through this 
epistle that there's a diligence that you remain faithful in. And diligence does not stop at what may detour you. It is the point at which you resolve that you will be resolute in finishing the course that is set before you. I know that some of you that on Thursday heard this heard perhaps a different devotional bent. But at times God uses the circumstance, the present tense circumstance, and even for ones that lead a church to be transparent. And my transparency was that in my heartfelt desire to call on those who could take my place, God once again touched my heart saying, you have a place. And you have a person, your wife, Karis's mother, to take this to the next stage. You've done your part. Let her do her part. And now go and satisfy the requirement of leading by example. What example? What is required when there's hardship, when there's crises? Will you let your life teach by example? Well, Lord, how do I know that it's not grandstanding in the hardship? Because you make much of me and you make little of yourself. That's how it will not be a grandstand. It will be a moment of transparency, vulnerability. You may not make it through the teaching. But you will make much of me regardless in the teaching. We desire that each of you show this same diligence. Will you show the same diligence? Will you see God in the magnificent brilliance of your darkest hour? That you do not become sluggish or imitate those who through faith and patience, or, but in, imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the requirement of those who, with faith, demonstrate it. You're patient and you're believing. He cites as an example here, Abraham. And then I'm going to close there and zip over to 27 of our teaching. For when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no other one greater, he swore by himself saying, surely blessing, I will bless you and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. We patiently endure, and the outcome is the obtaining of the promise. But Rich, what about the pain? You obtain the promise in spite of the pain, but the pain is not necessarily what God will buffer you from. For it is in that that he speaks his loudest lesson and demonstrates his greatest heart. We're not the only ones that suffer. We're not the only ones that shed tears, but we do it differently than the world does. And that's the point. David was one who under pressure, which was extreme, knew his vulnerabilities and at time made choices because of his fatigue and exhaustion. We're finding that out in this today's teaching. Are you exhausted today? 
tired of running, in fear, disappointed because seemingly you have patiently given everything to God that is within you, but it's just not worth the wait. It's not working. Your journals become cold because your heart is no longer warmed by the Lord. But the question is, has he stopped being anything other than who he is, or have we made him less than what he wants to be? And that can happen. To some degree, and not poised for judging David, it did happen. What would have appeared to be the apex of a voicing truth to Saul, who had been following him to his death, it seemed to be that the last teaching we went on, it was conclusive. Saul acknowledged that David was king. But within the next chapter, David is making a decision based on exhaustion, fatigue, and disappointment. And he makes it out of fear. He makes it out of a sense of loss and the pressure of trying to keep people happy. And as a result, the title would be in this, for David, moving from Hebrews, that he was making a covenant with the enemy. He was living with the enemy. God wants to assure you and me that residency is for him to take up once again in this heart and for him to once again have access to in any component part of our lives, the homes that he has given us to stay in whatever that may be, the vehicles that he's given us to drive in, whatever shape they end up in being. Some, it is the vehicle by which God delivers a person into his presence, and for some, it's a reminder of his grace and mercy because of his presence. And who can explain who comes out of it and who leaves it to enter into another realm that faith invites us to trust him in? So in 1 Samuel, go back to 27, let's see what we can discover that may be exhortative, may be relevant in terms of putting the brakes on some of you in a fleeing moment, a faltering episode of faith in which you're just tired. David said in his heart, now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. 1 Samuel, chapter 27, verse 1. Why did he say that? Because before, he was able to, with humility and yet great assertion, call out to Saul, who had been asleep in the center of hundreds of his men, and say, whose spear is this, and whose water jug is this? Calling out to the commander, General Abner. What had happened that we discovered at the close of the teaching is that God had put the entire army to sleep, where literally David went down there with one of his closest military men, and they basically tiptoed over bodies 
and over heads, over weapons, to get to the center of David's problem, which was Saul. They never awoke. It even indicates in that previous teaching that they were able not even to have to conjure a whisper. They were talking about what David would do and what he would not do. And he suppressed the desire of his young warrior friend to not take matters into his own hands by spearing Saul and pegging him to the ground, but to allow God to handle the situation. In the previous text, it would be that God was in control and would either judge Saul and take him out, or that Saul would, by reason of his age, natural causes, die, or by an engagement in a military conflict, die by the enemy's sword. Those were the three things that David was able to say. This is that which will happen to him. And to rest in the confidence that thus far God had protected him. He had the assurance from Abigail in the previous teaching, one who was renowned as a woman of God with great understanding and beauty and industry in delivering to David all the supplies that his men would need to be fed. And David had the evidence from her mouth, you're going to be king. And knowing this, I've come to keep you from doing that which be contrary to God's will in your life. I don't want you to take matters into your own hand, David. My husband's a fool, but you are a faithful servant of God. That's what she said. That's the way he moved to be in operation. But 27 changes things because it would appear that even in what is the strength of an individual comes the moment following that voicing and that victory in which you're overwhelmed. What is it that overwhelms you? When you're overwhelmed by something amazing as a delivery in which you've entered into an enemy encampment and you come out with basically the what would be called the paraphernalia of victory, Saul's spear and his jug of water, and able to voice that, what turns you then into someone that conspires to do something to save yourself. Saul's last words to David were, may you be blessed, my son David. You shall do great things and also still prevail. So David went on his way and Saul returned to his place. He's hearing this from the voice of one who was after him. Well, if you hear that from one who is after you and you compare it to one who is for you, it kind of changes the circumstance and situation. But in 27, something seems to have been dismissed from David. What was it that he did or didn't do? It seems to me that there's no evidence that from the point of his deliverance, he gave the Lord honor. He made a statement about God. He heard things concerning his placement of God, 
But there seems to be an absence of David gathering his men and say, on this day, the Lord has delivered us and has confirmed that through the words of the king. We will go our way, which is God's design, and he will go his way, which is God's design. And we will no longer suffer being rogues and threatened by his words. We're giving faith a shot. We're going to remain diligent in our faith, but we are honoring God in tribute to what we now have confirmed. We have Abiathar. We have Nathan and Gad, the prophets of God. We have an opportunity right now to consult him through prayer and worship. We're remaining steadfast in our faith. And God will be exalted, not in our fear, but in remaining confident in him. But David says, I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines. And Saul will despair of me to seek me anymore in any part of Israel, so I shall escape out of his hand. David is about 27, 28 years of age. He has about three more years before the relevancy of Saul will completely be irrelevant. For Saul will end up in demise by the enemy's hands and also contributing that to himself. Scriptures will tell us that he basically endeavored to commit suicide. But the enemy ultimately was the one that put him to his demise, as David literally had prophesied. So if God was going to take care of Saul in those three ways, why did David seek sanctuary in the enemy's encampment? Because he just wanted to stop. He wanted to cut a deal with some other group. He wanted to see if he could broker his future, still knowing that he was king, but to broker that time in which patience had worn out. He had reputation. He had evaded Saul. He had made attacks on the Philistine communities. He was seen definitely as a present force to contend with. So he had reputation. But what he did not have was a heart to trust in God in his difficulties. It says in verse 2 that David arose, went over with the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. He's going back to Gath, which is where he went before when Saul was pursuing him. Remember, he separated from his guys, went into Gath, and found himself literally entombed in a fortress of enemies. He realized that he was noted for who he was, not for feigning to be somebody that he wasn't. He was feigning insanity. And as a result of the feigning of his insanity, he escaped. But it wasn't because of his dignity. It was being perceived by those who at one time feared him as someone who wasn't in his right mind. God requires us to be in our right mind when mindless things happen to us, when our, 
when our perception of the situation is mired down with anxiety and the potential of depression and sorrow, we have to rally ourselves. It doesn't mean that we can't cry. I fought that on Thursday. Discipline myself even today. Why? Because I was close to it. But I have to marvel. It's interesting that on the very street of that accident, it's Ransom Street. You can find in that, I think, your own story. But the biblical picture for me is what we know to be true. The Lord paid our ransom for our lives that we enjoy presently. And the grave cannot keep us, will not hold us. He's guaranteed that with his own treasury. And the Spirit of God endowing us as wealthy beyond anything that we could ever possess on this earth. Does he possess us? Or do we, in times of testing, flee to make an alliance with the enemy, which is the world system, just to be done with it, just to take a time to strategize over it? It didn't go well for David then, but now what he's done is with his stellar reputation, He's compromised what it means to be a man that's following after God's heart because he's fearing an enemy who's already got his epitaph written by God's hand. You're no longer a king. The kingdom's being torn from you. David is the king. David is my picture of one who follows after my heart. And David... I put my seal of approval and I will see him through as approved in the crises. David knew these things, but he comes into this area having years before, probably at least seven, feigning insanity. Feigning insanity. And now what he's going to be doing is feigning fidelity. Does the world confuse you with being faithful to it? as opposed to being faithful to God? What will the predicament reveal about your faithfulness to God or whether you're wanting to be friends with the world? What is it that would cause that? Again, one of the things that most notably stands out to me is that every opportunity that presents itself as an impossibility, you call upon God. Why did those guys call me into the car? I think God did. He called me into the car. I honestly don't recall any fathers, mothers, relatives ever being invited into a crisis. Not that I'm aware of. Protocol usually prohibits that. And there I am. Oh, I can't do that. I'm not the guy. I'm not the one. And yet the Lord precisely defying all legalities, says to us at times, you are the one. Get into that predicament. Bring them out of it. You are the one. They'll respond. Not only that, your faith will be on display. By whom? Everybody's looking in while I'm simply right now just wondering what to do. Yep.
they'll look in, but there are two guys that will hear what it is you're doing. And those two guys I want to have challenged in their faith. They're dressed for success. They have all the garb on that says they're ready for business, but they could not do business with Karis at that time. I've been humoring you, but she turned into Kung Fu Panda in the car. <laughs> she revived. She was in a state of not knowing where she was at, and all she saw were these big, giant monsters and yellow suits coming at her with big gloves. And she was formidable. But prayer, seeking the Lord, trusting in him, brought peace to the circumstance. David, why didn't you pray before making a move? to compromise what already your reputation had been established in. A man after God's own heart. Well, it moves in to say, David dwelt with Achish at Gath. He and his men, each man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoham, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he sought him no more. It would indicate that Saul still was seeking him. But had God ever failed David, that Saul would have no opportunity to do anything other than watch him prevail? Really, can one person, can one situation that repeats itself be enough with every victory that has been guaranteed to change the course of your behavior for the contrary? as opposed to the very thing that God wants to demonstrate in your life. We know it can happen. It has probably happened to most of us. But will we say from this lesson, it's not going to be something that today I will satisfy for the sake of my fear or because I'm trying to help God out. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to split the baby over this issue. I'm remaining with God. I'm remaining in the work of God. I will not allow my faith to be quenched by fear, and I will not allow the reputation of God to be stained because of the situation that right now is provoking me. I'm not going to do it. In this case, it seems to be his strategy is to have a place for his people. But when did he not have a place for his people? And that's one of the challenges. When all of a sudden you say, I need a change of place. And God says, well, that's called displacement. That's not placement. That's displacement. When you want a change that's not according to my will and my will, that's displacement. It has consequences. You remain in place where I've put you, and for reasons that right now challenge you, you remain in place. But he goes to Achish, who is in this regard the fundamental authority over what he now will do. David right now feels, ah, oh, getting Saul off my back, not realizing he's turning his back.
on God who has delivered him by his face. If I have now found favor in your eyes, David says in verse 5, let them give me a place in some town in the country that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? Now we know that what he's doing basically is saying, I don't want to go into the big city, but I'll take anything in a primary city. Something that's just kind of in the rural neighborhood. I don't want to go in your block, but give me something that's linked with you, but that's my block. And that's the idea. That's where compromise happens. Not going to fully get into that place, but a little portion of it, I can make that work. Only the problem is, is he's not the owner of that place. There's going to be a requirement in order for him to have that place. There's going to be a behavior that David will have to feign in order to remain there. And that's what compromise does. It puts us on the position of having to be less than what God wants to say is his best for us. And so David right now, in bartering for this, will seem to be able to get what he's after. It places the, him in a dilemma. Achish gave him Ziklag that day, therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And you may say, bonus. Because of what David did, Ziklag belonged to Jerusalem to this day, to the people of Israel. It would have belonged to them regardless. God can take any circumstance that we enter into because of fear, and what does he do? All things work together for good to those who are called by God. So anything can ultimately work together for good because God's the one that sees to that. But that isn't the reason that we enter into something, just because we can say that he's going to let it work out for good. Because even though those things will get worked out for good, God could have done it with far less pain to you and a whole lot less anxiety and depression and a whole lot less of your reputation being sullied, which is what is happening. He's going to create confusion with what the Philistines see in him and ultimately what his people are going to understand. And so now the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one full year and four months. This is how long he dwelt where? In the land of the Philistines. How long are we willing to dwell in the land of the Philistines? And I use that illustratively. I'm not calling this the land of the Philistines. I'm saying how long can a man or woman dwell in a place that represents compromise and turning to the world system for provision of protection? I guess until you realize it's just not working. Now there's greater expectation from the world of what it is it wants from me. And now I am in the dilemma because I can't go there. I've only gone as far as I'm willing to compromise. Now it means everything. And I will lose everything if I spend one more day in this situation. It's godless. Not one more day with God. The situation that represents the world, the godlessness. 
So remember, part of this anchoring is established in Hebrews because Hebrews says, be patient. Be fearless in your faith. Trust God for what it is right now is a difficulty. Let him solve the problem. Let him call you into the situation and bring you out of the predicament. Wait, David would pen. Wait upon the Lord. David would actually pen psalms of what he learned in these situations of compromise. And just in the event that you aren't mindful of this, Psalm 23 really is one of those penned and famous psalms that is him looking back on his life and seeing all along God was fully able, capable, and proving his sovereignty and delivering David the very best of everything that he had, setting a table before him in the face of his enemies, the presence, the very presence of his enemies. We'll conclude this teaching and move into 28 on Thursday, if you can be here with us. The principles, though, as well, you will find echoed in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, and that is not to be unequally yoked. You can read about it thoroughly. In relationships in which at one time you would have been dominant and fearless in, you become subordinate and fearful of. Don't compromise for any reason. Impressed by the individuals, the contract that you can sign. It doesn't mean that you cannot be infused in situations even related to business, but let God do that for you. This relates strictly to that which requires of you the selling of your soul. Not the utilization of your gifts and talents. God uses that where you're at. But this is the selling of your soul. For beauty, for brawn, for stature. God says, don't do that. For you will not change them, they will change you. Don't do it. Lord, we ask for your blessings now as we participate in remembering you, Jesus, beautifully, fondly, reverently. Thank you for hearing us, Lord, in that which we do to commemorate your sacrifice for our lives. We're not to take that lightly. We are to be those who take it, Lord, with appreciation each and every week. You allow us to know that it's to be done with frequency. And so allow us, Lord, to participate in that together as a family today, breaking bread with one another and drinking of your cup. In Jesus' name, amen.